0: It is August 31st, 2020. This is Roque. There is no shortage of discrepancy when it comes to telling stories about Iran and being Iranian over the last 75 years. We hear different versions of our background, often depending on the social, political, or personal perspective of those giving their opinion. But if history is made by those who report it and those who have lived it, then today's guest is a treasure. Homas Arshar has been reporting on Iranian affairs for over 55 years, first in Iran, now in the United States. And she has done so with a commitment to object Activity, integrity and respect for human rights a feature episode with the brilliant homos Shah coming up this is stories from to and about the iranian diaspora i'm gian gomeshi this is rook Welcome to episode number 40 of Rook. Hi there. An episode I've very much been looking forward to today. Homas Shar set to join me in just a few moments. The legendary Iranian-American journalist. Hi Shia.
1: Hello, Zianja. Khubi. Khuba.
0: Khubi. Yes. Uh, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> Groovy Shia. By the way, somebody uh, I met somebody on the weekend who was talking about you and really enjoying, you know, that oh, I really like Shia Groovy Shia, and then completely separately later in the in a conversation was was saying they like Dang Show. They oh. didn't put it together that you're Shia from Dang Show, the band Dang Show.
1: Oh. So, so I, yes. this, I just <laughs> assume, <starting> <laughs>
0: I assume everybody knows that no. the, that Groovy Shia is from the Groovy Dang Show uh, fame <laughs> and, uh, and rock fame. Uh, always a pleasure to see you, Shia John. Uh, did always. you happen, last night, did you happen to see a program on CNN called United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell?
1: No, no. Did, did you not. hear about it? No, I actually okay. I'm curious. To hear about it. Do you what, watch what? Well, you
0: don't I, don't I don't imagine you watching TV or anything. No, do you? no. 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 You're probably reading a history book about uh, uh, Reza Shah or yes, something. Yes, and yeah. and
1: I, I I rather to practice piano. Actually. Okay, well that's
0: yeah. a good that But sometimes it's worthy of watching there's things on for TV sure, that are, for uh sure. so this show is this guy he's actually a comedian. I've been, interviewed him before. He's a very nice man. He looks at immigrant groups and different races and ethnicities in America. So last night there was this full episode on Iranian Americans mm-hmm. on CNN, Whoa. and you know it was it was good. I mean, it's some some very good moments with some Jewish Iranians in New York and some high school girls teaching Farsi. Uh, and Jason Rezaian was on; he makes some great points. The the uh, Washington Post journalist. I don't think it was earth shattering, you know, this episode, uh, uh, and it was devoid of some of the charm and the that groundbreaking feel of anthony bourdain's episode in iran remember in in 2014 and they referenced that a couple times because that was on cnn as well but my point is that my heart was still fluttering you know when i see iranians on a major show being profiled in a positive way i was so happy to see it it was so good and and it was so you know it was good to see at the same time I yearn for the day when it's not a big deal to see positive explorations of Iranians on American mm-hmm. TV. You know, yes. uh, it's, it's it's always bittersweet. It's like, yeah, I want to call everybody, watch this, <laughs> and I think, why, why why, it is, why can't we just get to the point where it's not a big deal? It, yeah. it you know, it still felt like a big deal. Last that, I was happy to see it, and uh, um, way to go to W. Kamau Bell for putting that episode on. You should watch it. I'm sure you could sure. see it. I should
1: some... the other day. You recommend. To me, to watch, stop making sense, and I watched it, and I was
0: the Talking Heads concert. Yes, movie. thank I am, you very much. It is the, the the second best concert film I believe <laughs> ever made. And uh, one of my favorite bands ever. Nothing to do with the Iranian diaspora. <laughs> Although I would like to make David Byrne of Talking Heads an Iranian, uh, an honorary Iranian, because uh, we we could use his creativity. You know, he's just so brilliant. Uh, yeah, stop making sense. If you want some recommendations, you could watch Stop Making Sense as well. By the way, speaking of recommendations, our series last week reflecting on the Pahlavi dynasty on the 40th anniversary of the death of the Shah of Iran this, this past summer marks the 40th anniversary. It's generating a lot of letters and comments. We, we did this over two episodes, so if you've not checked them out, please do so on any of our platforms. The last two episodes of Rook, uh, dealing with the Pahlavi dynasty, uh, uh, Dr. Abbas Milani, Andrew Scott Cooper, Mohammed Amini, all weighing in in over uh, four hours of programming. And remember that subscribing is free on any of our platforms so uh, please do so a shout out as well to mo rahimion today's episode made possible in part due to inshufin inc an insurance investment and financial services company mo rahimion has made it his mission to give back to the iranian community and persian culture thanks to mo you can check out more at inshufin.com i-n-s-u-f-i-n inshufin.com okay Let's get to our very special guest today. Shall we, Shaya? Yes, let's go. When it comes to Iranian journalists, and particularly those who are now in the diaspora, it would be hard to make the case that there is anyone more iconic than my guest today. She was born in Shiraz in 1946, into a Jewish family, then raised in Tehran. She spent her first 32 years in Iran where she studied French literature before getting her PhD in journalism at the American World University in the United States. Along the way, she has spent 55 years creating content, reporting, doing interviews, and bringing information into the lives of Iranians. Homasa Ashar is an Iranian American author, activist, feminist, and journalist. She was a columnist for Zaneruz magazine and K-Han Daily Newspaper between 1964 and 1978. During that period, she also worked as a television producer, director, and talk show host for national Iranian radio and television. After moving to the US in 1978, Homasa Ashar continued as a freelance journalist, radio and television producer, and an on-air. Host. She is a multiple award winner who is also the author of four books and the editor of 11 other volumes, including five volumes of the Iranian Women's Studies Foundation Journal and four volumes of the History of Contemporary Iranian Jews. In 2005, Homas Arshar founded the Center for Iranian Creative Arts, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit organization, and the first of its kind, and she has been a trusted advisor to Human Rights Watch for 25 years. She is currently the host of her popular radio program, Ba Homas Arshar, Breakfast with Homas Arshar, which can be heard weekly in Los Angeles. And right now, Homas Arshar joins me from LA, California. Hello.
2: Hello, Jean. How are you?
0: I, I am well. I am so happy and honored to be speaking with you. Thank you for doing this.
2: Thank you for inviting me to your popular talk show, or rock, as you call it.
0: <laughs> well, let me start... To, well, thank you. I, let me start here. Let me start with today. You, you clearly have a thirst for journalism and human stories and news that remains unabated. And if I start with your current work and your weekly radio program... I wonder, what is the allure for you at this point? Is it the human interaction? Is it the audience? Or is it being at the epicenter of important conversations about Iranians and the world?
2: First of all, is it a virus? Journalism is a virus. When you get it, you don't, you never get rid of it. Hmm. So for 55 years, I have been doing that. Um, I have been having this career that I love. And every single day that it passes... I love it more to answer your question all the above. I have interactions with people. I have, um, it gives me um, ample time and also energy to uh, read, to listen, to observe and to uh, be a um, mediator between what is happening and also between the people who listen or read or watch me on TV. Uh, so I, um, I take it very seriously. I love it very much. And I think that I have been born to be a journalist because uh, even in my uh, personal life, when I start asking questions, my husband says, can you you put your journalism career aside? (laughs) I have an inquiring mind. So uh, I think the match was good. And uh, Homo Sasha the person, and Homo Sasha the journalist, we are living together very peacefully and interacting between us. So uh, that's why I have continued for 55 years. And I think if uh, nothing happened to me or I don't lose my mind, I have, I'm have i in a good state of mind. I will continue until, until I die. But uh, normally... Well, you make it a little bit less, a little bit less until um, the body doesn't let you do it or the mind doesn't let you
0: do it. You really you really love it more than you ever have. That's not just Persian taught. That's you mean it. You I
2: mean you, it. you I mean it and I, I think that by staying in this career for fifty five years I made my point because you know, doing uh, this all these five and a half decades I have been writing, and I have been talking, and I have been interacting with people. And not always everybody liked what I did. Everybody um, was um, agreed with what I did. So even the challenge of uh, getting negative feedbacks, or sometimes um, people just not liking me and putting uh, leaving voicemails that are not nice. Even that didn't let me uh, stop doing right. what
0: I'm doing. Right. How does the virus, uh, <laughs> virus manifest itself in the moment? <laughs> I'm curious if you still get that energy jolt, those butterflies when you do an interview, uh, the nervousness that, say, a young journalist would have if they're interviewing a Shah or an important person or a CEO. Where is that in, Is that still in you, or have you been there, done that enough that you don't need those butterflies anymore?
2: No, I I do have it when I'm doing my radio show. is not that much because people cannot see me. But to be honest with you, Jean, when I'm on the stage and I talk to people and audience that are sitting in front of me, is like the first day that I'm doing this. You know, I I hear the my heartbeat on my throat, and you know I I'm sure that you have experienced that one also. If you call it butterfly, I say it's my heart beating mm-hmm. so fast. So. Even now, and even in this age, when I go on the stage, I still have this sentiment and this uh, reaction of that my body shows, and I uh, I am aware of of it every single time. So it it doesn't go away, and the virus they don't have they don't they have not find it. They have not found the vaccine yet, so it's going to be with me all the
0: time. In case you're just tuning in, uh, Homo Sarsha does not have the virus that is a popular pandemic right now. She she has the media, the journalism virus. Um, Let me ask you about methodology, because I've had the occasion to interview some icons of journalism, and I find there is a stark contrast between them, between someone like Larry King, say, who, who told me he takes pride in not being too prepared for his questions, so he can be, as he sees it, more natural when he asks them. And Barbara Walters, who told me she fastidiously did her homework for any and all interviews she's ever done. And then someone like Dan Rather, who says to me, you have to go with the flow. So what about you? What about Homo Sachar? Do you believe in extensive preparation, or do you rely on your investigative and intuitive skills in any situation somehow?
2: No, not expensive one, but uh, I prepare myself. I uh, do whatever is needed to know my my uh, guest, and uh, sometimes my guests ask me, send me your question, and I try to tell them that the first reaction to a question would be the best one if you prepare for yourself to answer a question it's not going to have that oomph that we're looking for in, in journalism right. so i don't uh, i think about question i don't put question on paper and i go with the flow i i'm 100 percent with that rather because you know what the first question what you're going to ask and then um, according to the answer that you get, you may have another question. So I, I can say that I am 50-50. I prepare myself, and the only thing that I do it very deeply is to know my guest, to read about him or her, and it, uh, when I, was, I wanted to in- introduce uh, my guest, I should know who I'm introducing. And uh, that's the way I, I do it.
0: You know, just reading that introduction about you and, and all that you've accomplished. Um, and, that, and that's without getting into the challenges you've had to face as a, as a Jewish woman in Iran, uh, especially, and then as a new immigrant for some time in, in America. Uh, there is a notion with someone like you that this was destiny. Uh, was it, d- d- did you always want to be in media, someone who tells stories?
2: No, actually not. I was in love with architecture. And I uh, wanted to become an architect, but um, as you may know, uh, anyone uh, going to the university needs uh, an exam that you pass, like SAT that they pass here, and uh, we call it concours. And uh, in that uh, exam, you decide to go to you. Do, you have the right to choose three uh, schools or departments to go in, and I have decided to go. I have written uh, my uh, application, that I want to be an architect, and my first choice was architecture. And my second choice was French literature, because I was speaking French, and I knew knew that not too many people uh, would speak English, uh, speak French at that time. So that was like a a backup for uh, going into the university. But unfortunately, I was not, uh, I was not uh, successful to go to architecture art department, so they decided to send me to the French literature. And then when I was there, I um, saw and I became friends with the journalist uh, that uh, was also in the school, and he told me that there is a magazine coming up called Van Roo's, and uh, they need a French translator. And uh, I was a student, I needed money, and uh, then I decided to go. And I said, yeah, fine, I will do it. Mm. And when I went there and I started doing uh, translation of articles from French newspapers and magazines, I found out that this is what I meant to be. So uh, from there, from being a translator, I became a reporter and then I became a columnist. And uh, there was this uh, this history, was, uh, and I I stayed in Zanaruz in magazine for almost 10 years, and then I uh, went one step up and I um, went to Kehan, the uh, daily newspaper, and from there to uh, you, television and i had my own program two times a a week and until uh revolution
0: happened okay so you said a lot there but since you're talking about your time in iran that's a that's a good segue let me let me let's go back take me back to first of all uh, to the beginning tell me about being a a jewish kid in shiraz and then tehran in the 1950s and 60s how how would you characterize life in those years for you
2: I was born in Shiraz, but I was not raised in Shiraz. I, uh, my parents moved to Tehran when I was a year and a half, so I don't have that much memory from my very early childhood in Shiraz. But in Tehran, I, uh, I, we had a very modest life. My father was working, my mom was raising us, and she would not work, and uh, we were living with our family. and. Uh, one thing that happened that maybe made my uh, uh, childhood and made who I am today is my mom's decision to put me uh, in a French school. And that French school was run by French nuns. So uh, in that school, which was primary uh, Christian, there was no uh, difference between us that we had. Muslims, we had Jewish, we oh. had Christians, and we had Assyrians, and living with different religions, different people around me, and uh, including the director, including the teachers, and also my classmates and everything, brought up in me uh, to being a like. A citizen of the world, not to think about myself as a Jewish girl. And uh, we were living in peace. We were loving each other. Nobody would ask what's your uh, religion at that time. And uh, at 18 years old, when I just started working and uh, went to the university at the same time, I wouldn't feel any different, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And uh, the only time that this hit me, and hit me very hard, was a couple of months, or three or four months before the revolution, when people got very excited about the revolution, people got very emotional about it, and I started to see different gaze of other people to me. Let me get uh, to that,
0: though. That's important. I want to get to that, but I I want to stick with it for a second about uh, your childhood, because I want to know how you became (laughs) you. Were, Were you... Were you always inquisitive as a kid? Were you asking a lot of questions? Were were you like a little interviewer even when you were a kid? (laughs)
2: Yes, I have heard so many times that... And also, I I, uh, I was raised in a family that... uh, uh, with much mat- matriarch family where women were very very outspoken my mom was it my grandmother were and uh, so i learned from them they I you know i they had saying in the family so uh... Um, i learned about it and my father was very supportive of women also and he also gave me the the wing to fly so I think that the way that I was brought up in the school and in the family let me be whatever I wanted and let me f- uh, go after what I wanted mm. and have a goal because most of my uh, classmates when i was uh, when we uh, finished the high school, most of them got married and i I got married too after a year, but I told my husband if I want uh, get married with you, you should promise me something. And he said, what? And he said, you should let me go to the university. Because I know that for that time that I was getting married, if you stay in the university, it was very hard to get married afterwards <laughs> because right. there was a saying at that time they would say, dojuran, ya ya miran The girls are... Uh, <laughs> Either they're pretty
0: or they go to the, the university. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yes. what a terrible saying yeah.
2: <laughs> i know i know yeah, yeah. and i i i just wanted to wanted to go to university so badly and my husband also was a very um, intellectual guy and he said of course and he 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 helped me with uh, sitting the, uh, my kids my two sons when i was going in a class and when i was going to television to record or to um my program he he would do everything uh, to, for me to reach my goal and forever and ever I'm very thankful to him and I appreciate what he did for us for in the family so um, I think all depends on who is around you and how, how they react to you being so ambitious in your life.
0: Right. Well, this is obviously an incredible testament to your parents and mm. those those strong work, working women around you in Tehran, whether it's your mother, your grandmother, etc., that when you say... You didn't feel that exceptional. You didn't feel that different. You didn't feel like you didn't fit in. You didn't feel like um, you were particularly discriminated against. This is quite extraordinary because you were, whether it was Zana Ruz or Kay Han, you were a Jewish woman in Iran working as a journalist throughout the 1960s and 1970s. I can't yes. imagine there were a lot of other Jewish women doing this job, were there?
2: No. I, uh, actually, I am one of the ten... Iranian women journalist that was working at that time. so in these 10 people we were only two Jewish uh, ladies working. and: uh, So my, you must uh, have had
0: some awareness that you were, you were uh, different or you were quite exceptional.
2: I uh, honestly, I have uh, encountered uh, some of my uh, colleagues, colleagues uh, uh, after the revolution outside Iran, and they would say, "Homa, we didn't know you were Jewish." Now we find out that you're Jewish. So, uh, honestly, Jean, what I'm telling you is is very um, honest. We wouldn't ask people about the religion. Nobody would care at that mm-hmm. time. There was a, a discrimination for the Jewish people in the laws of the country. You could not get higher than one stage in if you were... Uh, employee of the government, you would not be, um, not go higher if you were in the army. You don't, you never become a sepakbord team Atish atishbord if you were Jewish or non-Muslim. Actually, to, to make it correctly, but the way that we live on that period in Iran, we wouldn't, we wouldn't notice that we are very different from others. Mm. We knew that we were minorities, and by knowing the history. We would know that we wouldn't be able to do much because living a a jewish living in a muslim country could do that much not more than that but i for one didn't let my religion be an obstacle for what i was doing and fortunately uh, I never encountered uh, an animosity or persecution, or, but I have heard from my my parents, I have heard from my grandmother, uh, I have heard from my mother-in-law and father-in-law that they were living in Esfahan or Shiraz at the time, and many many years before I was born. They they had problems and there was uh, like persecution of minorities, but I think that the time that we were in, I was I started working. The whole country were just in a stage that they wanted to do something for the country, and we were working hard to make to make. a better life for the country and for the other people in, in, in my country. You know, that, so- that, that,
0: that's, the, that's an interesting point because I, I, I want to get this from you in terms of the clarity from you because we've had a few guests, Uma, on this show mm. who have talked about, either if they're talking about their, their childhood or, or their parents or, you know, who've talked about a time a time in iran and and i guess in, in in most cases it's it's tehran but not exclusively tehran in the 70s and the 60s Mm-hmm. where there were, they, they talk about a very multi-ethnic, um, multi-racial uh, and uh, a, a community that was quite integrated and quite harmonious. And I always wonder, is that dewy-eyed nostalgia from you know, looking back and going, oh, it was so much better, especially because of what comes afterwards in terms of the current regime? Or was it, in fact, that harmonious and integrated?
2: it was harmonious and it was it was for fact a real life that we were just having over there so and and because of that you know I, uh, a lot of people like me a lot of minorities when the first movement and demonstration started and they saw that is in something islamic is coming and a religious man is just becoming the number one uh, uh, leader of the opposition group and demonstrators and stuff right. like this. We wouldn't believe it. Nobody and and you know what? Many of my colleagues would tell me, "Don't worry, Homer. It's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. This is just a symbol. We're just following this guy, but we're going to do it. There would be a democracy. There would be this. There would be that." And I said, "He's a religious man. He's going to come, and he will. He would change." the law in the uh, country, and they said, no, are you kidding? It's not going to happen, but it happened. So I want to make the point that we were so in tune with the life that we were there, and we were so relaxed that uh, nothing would happen, that when it happened, actually it happened, it got us in, in very big surprise.
0: Before we get to that moment, that fateful, the events of 1978 and and the events with you that are quite um, harrowing. Just sticking with what it's like to be a media person in Iran in this period, we know that there was or there has been no shortage of censorship of the media and culture under the current Islamic regime in Iran. But we also hear a lot about the crackdown on dissent and opposition uh, during the Pahlavi years and even in the 1970s as well. Did you feel free? to be objective and tell the stories you wanted to tell when you worked as as a producer, as a director, as a host on Iranian national radio and television? Or were you aware of lines even then you could not cross?
2: Yes, we were aware of lines that we couldn't cross. And we wouldn't cross. So there was a, a generation of new uh, newscasts or generation of journalists at that time in Iran that we... Uh, learned how to self censor ourselves uh, and uh, so we, we knew that there is something that we should not write about it and sometimes also very uh, I- innocently you would write something that would not be um, uh, published because uh, they find uh, they find a trait on it that was uh, somehow giving some uh, messages, Uh, hidden messages to the readers of the newspaper or magazine and they would not print it and we we would say okay for example I wrote I I translated actually this one an article about being left-handed so for the kids that write uh, that uh, Uh Uh uh, were left-handed from the birth and this this, uh, uh, article was not published because they said this is going to give a connotation about left. It's Chapi, <laughs> that's the Chappi. Uh, right. So uh, and uh, for me, as, uh, as a journalist, that was not at all uh, political, and I was not uh, against uh, the regime, and I was not. I was doing my job as a uh, educator, journalist educator, and uh, uh, giving voice to women, and also at that time. Anything that women wanted to do, were allowed to do it because they find they got the right of uh, uh, voting right, and right. they got the uh, uh, right for divorce. They got the right for travel. They got the right to get their kids when they uh, they are divorced. And all these قانون همايتي خانواده at that time was very very hot, and the law was passing in there. So we were. Giving time and also we were giving the liberty to talk about all this, but there was something that we we knew sometimes some things were very sensitive. You should not touch it. You should not talk about the royal family. You should not go in. I mean, in a bad sense, criticize them or something right. like that. But you, you you could criticize the prime minister. You could criticize the. Uh, mayor of the city. Uh, but uh, the, the the red line was the royal family. So uh, I think we didn't know any better about t- democracy or, or being free to write, freedom of writing or freedom of speech or freedom of uh, beliefs. So uh, in the context of the law that was in the country, we were... Navigating and writing and doing and talking about it and having conferences and having lectures and uh, on on the national Iranian television, I had a program about the family. So everything about family. where I'm having uh, psychologists in the uh, on my show, uh, having sociologists in my show talking about why uh, uh, these problems are in in the family. What which kind of problems are? Is the mother and the father how they uh, should raise kids and stuff like this. So, my my job and my career in Iran back in Iran was not political and at not all. It's not affected, so right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I was I I was not affected
0: by censorship. Although when you talk about that self censorship, uh, it's a precarious path, right? A, because it can then become socialized behavior. In other words is there a danger that you somehow become neutered? You know, uh, you get used to not wanting to cross those lines and that's who you become, then, right? And, and this is, of course, a, a more prominent issue after the revolution. Uh, and it's a difficult one that filmmakers or artists or cultural figures or, I guess, media people, of course, in Iran times, now have to time. keep walking yes. this line. And after a while, you wonder, well, who do you become if you have to keep making, creating things that stay within the box, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Is it not comparable what is going on in Iran today and uh, before the revolution? Hundred times worse. Hundred times
0: worse. So you were a, a prolific and consistent journalist with Zana as we've talked about with K. in the sixties and seventies. Then things change in this mm-hmm. period leading to the revolution in nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, the story of your final days. Uh, and I've listened to you tell this story on, uh, in your recording of it. Uh, the, the final days at Keihan, it, it is is—it is both heartbreaking and infuriating. Can you give us the short version of what happened at that fateful time in the fall of 1978 to you?
2: So at that time I was uh, a translator of news at the Keihan uh, newspaper and uh, we had like a different editor and different group were together one editor was for news uh, international news another editor was for uh, iran news and there was also t- uh, other department for Different kind, like news writers for sports, and you know, it's a, a newspaper has everything. So I was in the group of uh, news translator, and I would translate from French. And we had an editor that was, and we were all sitting around a big table, so we were talking to each other and we were exchanging ideas and stuff like this. And one day that I came, I, I that was. That that was the, um, the week that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini left Iraq and went to Paris. Right. And, and all the news and giving um, uh, his schedule of meeting with different news about Ayatollah Khomeini in Paris. And mostly France Press was one of the wire uh, news on the wire that would talk about and write about those days. And I, after a few days, I was sitting at the table waiting for this wire to come for me to translate. I didn't get any. And uh, uh, after one or two days, I was suspicious. What happened? I would ask. Don't you get any wire? And they said no. But then, at night, I would go home, and I will. Uh, I was uh, subscribed to newspaper. It would go. It would come to my door, and I would look at the newspaper, and I said, there, there is articles or translations from uh, France press, and. Uh, finally after two three days i went to my editor and said, why you don't give me those news to translate i'm doing nothing sitting here doing nothing and he started first he started to say okay uh, sit down and don't don't complain you're very why are you nagging And 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 but after two three times or two three days i i just uh, couldn't stand it anymore, so I went to him and I said, tell me what's going on. And at that time, when he responded to me, to, to my question, he replied to my question, was well, the time that I find out that something has changed in, in this country, and something has changed uh, in the mind of people. And he said, are you crazy? Who will give the news of Ayatollah Khomeini to a Jewish girl? You know, it uh, will become dirty, as we say in, in Persian, najis. Mm-hmm. So I was in kind of state of shock, and I just look at him, and I I, I couldn't, I was speechless. I didn't know how to respond. And then the story is, is long, so I, uh, this is the day that I decided to come and sit home and not yes. go back to work. And then uh, following stuff, following uh, event that happens, and I talked to one of my colleagues, and I talked to my neighbors and stuff like this, and every time... Sh- there's another shock, another shock. And my colleagues say, You know what? For you, it's better to go to Israel, to your own country. I said, What do you mean, my own country? My own country is Iran. And you know what? That's, uh, every time that I talk about this event, it's, my heart just breaks again and yes. again. And uh, uh, that, that was it. And we left the country. We left the country because my husband also was, uh, they fired him from his job. And they fired me from um, national uh, Iranian television. Everything happened in two weeks. So we said, uh, maybe it's, it's not permanent what's happening. Let's go out and let's leave for now. And we left two months prior to the revolution. I never went back.
0: Homer, I, I mean, I guess this is stating the obvious, but there's this very sad irony around the fact that the that the very revolutionaries in your story, who who ostensibly see themselves as, I guess, progressive and comrades and Fekr mm-hmm. in some way, are the ones who are suddenly calling you by demeaning sexist names and alluding to your Jewish race. How how hard was that for you?
2: Bravo, Jean, to catch this point. This is this is this is the time that I hurt me more because you wouldn't expect from them, you know what? You wouldn't expect that somebody that was like, you, they're using, they, they used the name that Kehan was belonged to the leftists, and it a lot belonged to the rightists. So in that editorial group that was in in Han, more than 100 people were working there. And there was a lot of people that were just liberals from the left and the, and we were communicating we were just colleagues and we were friends and never a a religion of somebody will come up and all of a sudden you see that change that sudden change in the mentality of these people and they had them some excuse they said this is a bahana this is an excuse for us don't don't get don't get us wrong a, a progressive person will never go back to religion will never accept a religious man as a leader we need to order for the revolution to happen then people who take the crown out of Shah's head they will very very easily take the amame out of uh, 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 clergy right, right. so it's not it's, it's it's easy it's not nothing important don't worry about it but uh, we saw, I saw it. I saw it happening slowly, slowly, slowly. And the most embarrassing and the most shocking one were the intellectuals that changed all of a sudden.
0: And by the way, that change that you were at the forefront of, or or you were at the, there in the moment of, uh, as I understand it, I mean, Kayhan has basically since then been an organ of the Islamic regime, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that change happened been, and it
0: again. never changed back, yeah. So you arrive in California in 1978. What what was it like to come to the the United States as someone who'd been this journalist on the front lines in Iran. Now you're in a new country with a language that you don't, uh, I don't know, you, you probably didn't speak that well. I know you spoke French. No, How I
2: didn't. Yeah, I didn't speak uh, English.
0: You didn't speak English. No. So what <laughs> what, what? was that for, like for you and your husband when you first arrived?
2: It was a culture shock. It was uh, fear of unknown. Uh, it was dark. I... Uh, I literally cried for six months. Whoever asked me, Homa, how are you, I, start, I would start crying because I wouldn't believe it. Because they, we came here not permanently, we came temporary and we would, our our uh, desire was to go back. So we just locked the, uh, our apartment and just left. And uh, the thought of not going back to the country was something that would kill me at the beginning. So the only thing that I could have think about it and would give me some kind of uh, relief at that moment is to go back to university again. So I decided to go back to university, and my husband said, you don't speak English. I said, okay, so what? I'm going to learn English while I'm uh, on the, in the mm-hmm. class. And it was hard. It was hard. I uh, started going to USC and for my master's degree and in communication in hope to go back to my own country with a better education and a better knowledge of journalism. And that's why I decided to go to Annenberg School of Communication. It was very hard. And then uh, I started to write because there was a Iranian Jewish Federation that they uh, started to, an organization for Iranian Jewish here in Los Angeles. And they wanted to have like a, a, a newsletter, so they asked me to do it. They knew me, so they asked me to do it. So that was something a little, a little uh for uh, hmm. uh, for that time. So I started that newsletter, and it became a magazine because I had to that to do with my like, Shofar, yeah. Yes. And then uh, I um, got a call from iraj Gorgin who also fled the country and came to Los Angeles and he said, we should start a radio here, and are you coming to work with me? With me, And I said, of course, but I don't know how to work in radio. He said, I'm going to teach you. Hmm. So all this happened in, in a period of maybe six, seven years. And then uh, I was a little bit satisfied that I'm doing what I love more so writing, talking, giving and at that time there was a lot of organization, new organization Iranian organization outside in diaspora actually that would invite me to talk, to give a lecture and then slowly slowly the news the um, uh, television, cable TV Iranian table, cable TV started that one person would just rent one hour of that time per week so we started with television one hour per week and I was writing the editorial, and then uh, this, this life went on. Let me
0: the- let me deconstruct a bit of what you said because uh, there's some important moments in there, not just for you, but I think for our diaspora. Uh, for, first of all. Uh, by the way, you, you didn't just arrive as someone who is in a new country is in a, with a language that you don't speak and uh, having uh, had this heartbreaking event uh, in your home country. But also right after that, I mean, the revolution happens and then the hostage crisis happens mm-hmm. and Iranians become persona, persona non grata in, nor- in North America. As I recall, I was a kid, but I remember yeah. this. So that would have also animated uh, all of these things that are happening with you right I mean i don 't know if how, how were you affected by that were you inoculated from that at USC or in, in California or did you feel the the turn that uh, that the shift in opinion that happened in America um, when Iran went from this uh, you know benevolent sort of place that was a friendly nation if you, if you knew anything about it to what would become in the words of uh, of uh, various American presidents, the evil empire.
2: Yeah, we. It, that was the second shock. The hostage-taking was the second shock that the Iranian community in diaspora felt. My kids felt it in the school. I felt it in our neighborhood. And at that time, we had a couple of organizations, Iranian organization, and also the radio was working. Our radio was working. So they they asked us to... To go to um, for an interview to different radios or uh, different gatherings and uh, talk about Iranian community and tell people that listen, we are not with those people. These hostage takers. We are we are against them because if we were. One of them we would have been in Iran. Right. people well, we flew the country we just we are exiled, we are immigrants, we are refugees and uh, this means that we don 't agree we don 't approve what they are doing. It was hard, but uh, the community the Iranian community came together to uh, actually to uh, to teach our American uh, host here in uh, in my city uh, for example. To tell them and uh, that no, we are different, and we you should not uh, treat us like those hostage takers. It was very hard. It was heartbreaking at the time. It was humiliating sometimes because we heard so many times, "Go back to your own country." And the uh, same, the same thing that I that I now that I um, laugh about it is, is this laugh is a very dark laugh yes, because yes. at that time I uh, also felt the same the same heartbreaking sentiment that I had when my colleague told me, go back to your country when I was in Iran, and he she meant that I should go back to Israel. So uh, it was hard, but we managed to uh, put that on behind us, too. That uh, At least it took a, a year, one year and a half, for people to start just getting a little bit more friendly with us and accept us as uh, people that are against the regime in iran back in iran
0: you alluded to some of the uh the media that uh, had begun in the period when you get here and and that you're recruited to be part of. I want to ask you the question directly. There are a fair number of Persian radio and TV programs in the diaspora now, of course, especially coming out of the United States, but really around the world. What was the media landscape like for Iranians outside of Iran in the early 1980s? It was...
2: uh kind of media <laughs> i would have i won't call them media 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 because there was like one room in a gentleman that was working on iranian national tv but was not also that was not host or what not producer he was like a engineer for example in uh back in Iran on the nir tv and they started to broadcast uh, first of all, to broadcast through the cable TV and the rental time. And it uh, started with one, the first one that I went with them and talked to John And then other one-hour TV, rental TV started. The pro- production was very poor. The uh, professionalism didn't exist. But uh, people would watch because this was the only line of liaison between um, Iranian communities. So we started to have ads, advertising, and doctors and lawyers and uh, I don't know, different kind of uh, um, jobs. They would give us advertising and that would just generate some money for the producer of the program to do it, and little by little, when the uh, satellite started, all of a sudden, everything changed from a small one-hour TV, rental TV on a cable, on an American cable uh, uh, channel, to a 24-hour program on TVs, and uh, but at that time, many of these people that started talking and being a host on the TV, they became a little bit familiar with the TV journalism and TV hosting and stuff like this. So they started to, and uh, they also started to recruit old journalists and old TV personalities back from Iran in their cables or in their um, satellite TV. Still to this day, except a couple of TVs that are uh, sponsored by uh, governments back in London or in uh, Washington, D.C., right. um, the other that are, are produced by uh, just one person or one family that they're doing is not the correct or the ideal uh, television that you are expecting or channel that you're expecting, but they're trying, and they're trying hard. That Some of them have been has survived for 40 years, and they're still doing it. But uh, now uh, the competition is so vast, and they're they just producing programs, and there are channels, I don't know, more than 40, 50 channels, Iranian channels, most of them out of here in Los Angeles, and some of them mostly in London, and also in Canada. You know, we have a lot in Canada, too. So um,
0: why, don't, why don't you work there? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, you but you haven't stopped since the early '80s. By the way, you are yeah. tireless in continuing to do your work, uh, whether it's publishing, uh, writing, or doing your weekly radio show or doing appearances. Um, but you have said that you 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 don't make much money to what you, what, doing what you do on in terms of the the uh, the radio show, etc. Uh, uh, why why doesn't Homer Sasha go and work with one of these big Iranian networks now, the Manotor or Iran mm-hmm. International, or BBC or Persian, or all of these guys?
2: Honestly, I, uh, when I started uh, radio with uh, Iraj Gordine and Radio Mead, and it was a very, very successful radio, I fell in love with radio as a media. And I did my uh, editorial on Drama Jam as a part of me that was still um, had the nostalgia of t- the television. But uh, at one time... I thought that my messages and what I'm telling people and I want to be and do is through the microphone of radio and not the uh, uh, camera of TV. So I decided not to continue. I go to TV. There are some of these cables that you're talking, Man Oto, Iran International, and uh, Voice of America, but as a guest. And I think that is enough for me. And uh, radio is the one that is my love for now. And I, I, I love it when I go to studio and I have the mic in front of me and I, I close my eyes and start talking to people. Uh, I feel much better than just doing makeup and um, getting dressed and that, everything and uh, being there, m- make sure that you don't, you don't move. That, that way or if you don't uh, close your eyes you don't
0: blink <laughs> I so agree with you I am uh, uh, in fact even with rook I mean we uh, you know we have a studio and when when, when post covid people come into the studio maybe we will start using cameras etc but a lot of people say, oh why don't you guys do the thing with on zoom that everybody's doing now and you know so there's visuals and and honestly I am so in love with audio still and I really believe. I really believe that we can have, even though you and I are not even in the same room right now, Mm -hmm. we can have a more profound conversation without the visuals and that, that, that it's a different experience. Um, for the consumer the person who's listening the person who's experiencing the interview it's different than it would be if there were visuals where you're distracted by oh look at her hair or what's in the background or did he just move his hand or uh, I'm not sure I like the way this guy is dressed or whatever it is uh, yes. and and theater of the mind you know this is radio I've always believed is that theater of the mind you're, you're developing the images yourself so I'm with you on that and yes. I understand it
2: and also you're, you're uh, talking to it more active audience when is radio as opposed to television that yes. are more passive ones yes. so they they listen to you when you, they're driving car they listen to you when they're walking so i think that radio is the media of the future
0: here here i hope that's uh, i mean uh, they, certainly it's 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 been an interesting twist radio was supposed to be dead 15 years Everything. ago and now with podcasts and and, uh-huh. the, uh, and all the different platforms out there there's been this surge again in audio programming which is which warms my heart i want to um uh, I know I can't keep you forever. I want to, before I let you go, ask you a few questions about the, the diaspora, because you are in such a an important position to be able to reflect on what you've seen. You, you've you said personally that you knew after a little while, and you've said it in this interview, that you would never return to Iran. But mm-hmm. there are many in our diaspora, as you know, that exist in this kind of Exilic mindset This notion that we are Waiting for a day To return to some Glorious Iran That that may never exist again Or may never have existed But uh, does it hamper the ability of our global community in your view to grow outside of Iran, to have the kind of impact socially, economically, politically that we would want to have if there is this sense of being temporary or squatting until we can return to Iran at some point?
2: I uh, put temporary life in outside Iran back behind me many, many years ago. And I uh, think that Nowadays, when you're a citizen of the world, your country and your beloved motherland is with you whenever you go. It it doesn't mean that you should live in a geographic premises to be Iranian. You should you can be Iranian whenever you are, wherever you are, and whenever you go. And uh, I think that I'm much more Iranian and a better Iranian when. I have the means from here, from Los Angeles, to talk about my country, to be the voice of the voiceless in Iran, to uh, be an activist, to try to give motivation to my countrymen and countrywomen back in Iran. Then if I live there and my hands are tight, I cannot do anything. So I see these temporary... Resident Iranian resident living outside Iran, especially in Los Angeles and California, getting old, they are uh, becoming uh, frustrated, becoming depressed, just for the for the thought that, that they have been here for 40 years and every single day they longed for going back to their country, and I think they have wasted a lot of time not doing anything except hoping for that return. Everybody can do something, and we, if something happens to Iran, if the regime is changed, we can always go back. But I think that we haven't, the way that I think and the way that I see the the situation right now doesn't mean that I should waste my 40 years here not doing anything, just except hoping going back. No, I, I don't believe that. And I know that I, my, my kids love to be in Iran, but they are just one is a chemist, another one is a writer, and then PhD in literature, and he writes books, and he's a historian about Iran, and he's one of the contributors for the um, Encyclopedia Iranica. Both of them are very deeply Iranian, but they are also servants, civil servants for Iranians. They're doing something for our history. They're doing something for our country. And by doing this, we are living in Iran, outside Iran, my home is
0: Iran but that temporary mindset that exilic mindset also mm. I believe or my concern would be leads to a disincentive to integration so you have these situations I mean you you in your community in LA for example uh, it's an older Iranian community who, that's been there for a few decades in Toronto where I'm sitting right now mm. um, there's a few of us who've been here for a few decades but for the most part it's a it's a very new community it you know there's a lot of been a lot of immigration in the last 10 years last 20 years last five years to Toronto and yeah. what you see in certain parts of and in fact we call it Toronto right is there are elements of the community that um, because they've all transplanted here uh, don't don't see the incentive don't see the need to uh, integrate into the broader can- Canadian community because where well, there's our you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> the friendly then the, the restaurant that we go to and there's our friends and and these these are the same people I went to Shadif University with anyway and so I'm just gonna speak to them and, and stay in my little bubble because one day we, we might return to Iran anyway
2: mm. but in the and they means don't, they don't even learn the language
0: correct I mean, I'm not talking about people who are in their 80s I would forgive that I would go okay well you know you've lived a long life you don't need to uh, I'm talking about 30 year olds who come here and don't don't know the language i have been here for 10 years so uh, and, and i know these people i'm not making this up my concern is then what happens to our ability as a community to interact with and influence uh, and and have a say in what's happening in the broader community i know you have a campaign in the u.s right now to be counted on the census right iranians mm-hmm. to be counted on the census that appeals to me because it's iranians saying Yes, we have this home country, as you've called it throughout this interview, but we are also in America, and we want to be counted here in America. And that's the part that is I, I find is dangerous about the exilic mindset, if you know what I mean.
2: Exactly. I'm with you 100%, and I think that is a shame not to, uh, not to be able— To see where we are living and to integrate with uh, the people that are around us and the country that we have been living for 40 years. Actually, I am living outside Iran for more than the time that I was living in Iran. So I cannot close my eyes for what is happening. For example, now that is the time for U.S. election, uh, the presidential election is totally different from those people that are still feel that they are, are just temporary here, and they think that the one we should choose the person for uh, a presidency of the United States that will just throw overthrow the regime in Iran, right. and they they don't think that if this guy is good for uh, America is good for uh, the community the whole. Of things that's happening in the U.S. is He's a good person for climate change and stuff like this, but only if he or she will say that I will overthrow and this is only saying. And I believe that each country, each leader of a country should 100% do something for his or her countrymen, for his country. No leader will give more value to another country than his or her own. Right. So this is the, the point of difference between people like me that think that in election, how we should elect a country, how we should vote for a uh, president, than uh, the people that think that this president is good for Iran, or this party is good for Iran, and this party is bad
0: for Iran. Well, on that and, note, I mean, the, the Iranian mm-hmm. diaspora is, is quite divided. Divided, particularly Very divided. around prescriptions for change in Iran. We are balkanized and often it's not even easy to have a conversation about it. <laughs> do you do, do you feel like the Iranian diaspora, as it has grown exponentially, has become more divided over the last 40 years?
2: I uh, believe that the um, Iranian community has been divided uh, during the last four years. I haven't seen such a division in in our community
0: the last four years
2: four years uh during the trump presidency and this has just we had moderate people we had people from left we had people from right and we had people from the middle and we would vote for for such president from democrats or from uh republicans and there would be no fight now we are encountering fights believe me jian there's Fight in the family between the friends, and they're killing each other. Why are you voting for this, and why are why are you not voting for the other one? And this division in a context of the country in the United States, you feel it, and in our community, you feel it more.
0: Well, no, I believe you because I, I feel it directly. <laughs> because depending on which guest we bring on from the Iranian community anywhere in the world, we get a bunch of mail saying, why did you bring this person on? They they represent this faction or another. And then the next week we bring somebody who's completely different and a whole bunch of other people say, this person is a Pahlavi lover or this person is with Jomri Islami. Yeah, you, yeah. you You must have experienced this. How oh, do yeah. you deal with an Iranian audience that... Has aspirations or expectations for you to take aside politically. I know you pride yourself on the objectivity of a journalist, but there yeah. are people who don't always like that in this polarized and heated world community. How do you deal with it?:
2: I do my best to be a fair and uh, a fair journalist and to have all kinds of guests in my program. Uh, from left, from right, from middle, from, uh, I don't know, t- different ideas, uh, uh, religion people, religious people, uh, uh, non-religious, secular ones. I bring everybody, and I, I every time I said, I'm questioning my uh, guests, and you listen to them, and you decide for yourself if you like this guy or you don't like it, or if you're, you believe in his or her or point, or you're not, you're not. We don't have a fight. The fight is futile. Why are we fighting with, with each other? There's no point in fighting. We just talk to each other. Let's talk. Let's get our point across and be civilized and be calm. But I have failed. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who would, uh, would you bring anyone on your show? I mean, yes. would you? What yes. Zarif?
2: If he, if he decides to come, if he accepts my invitation, I would love to have him.
0: So when, and Why you not? know, because, well, because you Anybody. know that there's people who are going to say, oh, you're giving a platform to the regime. So to what the
2: regime, you- I understand that, yes. but it depends on questions that you ask.
0: Yes. Have you changed as a journalist? What, what do you do now that you wouldn't do as a younger person working in media?
2: I would be very uh, competitive, and I would be very... I was very competitive, and I was very aggressive when I was young. And I would just want it to put across my, my point of view, and I would just stand for it, and I would talk, and I would argue. I, I don't do it that way. And now I'm in a in a kind of peace with myself, and if uh, people are just leaving voicemail, a nasty voicemail for me, and they're... Why are you, exactly, the same thing that happened with you. Why are you bringing this guy, or this lady to your program, and you're not Iranian, you're just a traitor, and all <laughs> this. So I listen, and I just say, when you get a lot of criticism from different group and different uh, uh, views, from left, from right, from middle, from religious, from you're secular, you do something everybody. right.
0: You're doing something right. are doing
2: right. something right. So I'm, I'm in peace with myself, so I don't get angry, and I don't try to... Um,
0: <laughs> you don't need to prove yourself. Do you read comments in social media, or do you stay away from them?
2: Oh, I love comments.
0: <laughs> you read the bad ones?
2: <laughs> I read all.
0: And it doesn't hurt you?
2: Uh, I get sad, but I, get, I don't get... Uh, uh, I don't get angry to respond. I never should respond, but I get sad. Uh, Because sometimes I feel, I have worked for 55 years, but people, really, there are people that they don't know me that that good. But then I said, maybe they're just new listeners. (laughs) 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 I uh, console myself that, uh, yeah, there are people that they don't know me, so.
0: One final question for now. And you'll have to promise to come back because there's so much we still haven't covered with you, with your books, your human rights work, uh, all all that you've done over the years. Uh, Your personal story has had many ups and downs and uh, the Iranian people have been through so much in recent decades. On the first episode of Rook back in April, I, I talked about wanting to create this show at a time when it's been a very difficult year for those in Iran and those in the Iranian diaspora. Through all of that, through all of it, you keep going. And I can only see that as a measure of your belief that a difference can be made. How do you stay positive? How do you not succumb to discouragement?
2: Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I get depressed. Sometimes I get sad. But I give myself 24 hours. I tell myself I almost sleep on that. Don't react now. Sleep on that and give yourself 24 hours before reacting because there's some instances that I say, okay, I have been working for 55 years. Now I don't deserve to, be, uh, to get this kind of reaction from people. So why don't I get uh, retired? And then, uh, as I said, I just give myself a couple of days, maybe one day today, and then I said, I have decided to do this, and I knew all the ups and downs. And this is going to pass. This is going to pass. So uh, be calm, take a break, take a breath, rerun your program, and in two weeks uh, have another new guest and just continue what you're doing. You're doing not a bad job, so hmm.
0: um, don't give up. But what about on a broader level? Are you, do you have an optimism about the future for Iranian people?
2: I'm optimistic, and I think democracy and freedom will one day be in Iran. Maybe I will not see it, because I don't see it as a just sudden change. But I'm sure that the future of Iran is a country with freedom and liberty and equality for all the citizens of Iran. It may not be my time to see it, but listen. The uh, life of a, uh, of a nation is so vast and so big that mine is very little like a uh, little time during this long history of my country. So this will pass, but I'm, I'm very optimistic that in the future, maybe not near future, but in the future, we will see a free Iran for sure.
0: I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. Thank you for doing this.
2: Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for having me in your show. Yeah.
0: I look forward to seeing you in person again before too long.
2: Merci.
0: Homo Sarshar is an award winning journalist, author, and activist. Her weekly radio program is called Breakfast with Homo Sarshar. She joined us from Los Angeles, California today. And let's go out on some music by Dang Show. This too shall pass. Now that I think of it, not unrelated to what Homosahar was just saying about taking a breath when she is agitated or upset at the state of things, and reminds herself that this will pass. This song by Dang Show Shia and his brother Taha and others is from 2019. Thanks to all of you for supporting and subscribing to Rook. Thank you to Mo Rahimian and Inshufin. Remember you can find us on Instagram and Telegram, as well as uh, Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and rookmedia.com, our website. I'm Gian Gomeshi, Mizun Boshin.
1: in <laughs> عبر آن ها میرسد بالابر آن ابر می شود رنگ بهار همچون هوا در هر نفس این نیز بگذرد ویست تو شلو پس. زمان دلبرم سازی بران آنساز می چکت بر کوه دشت آن میزند زنگ زمان همچون هوا در هر نفس این نیز بگذرد ریست تو شلو پس. آهی براد آن آه میرسد بالای آبر، آن آبر میشود رنگ بهار همچون هوا در هر نفس این نیز بگذرد